0: Hello and welcome to From God to Us, the podcast where we discuss biblical issues, biblical studies that help us answer questions about God, about Bible, about the people, about life, cultural issues with application for daily living. We are in our current series on how we got the Bible. We have looked at a number of issues at this point regarding the authority of the Bible, which books belong in the Bible, The Greek text and how we know and we can have confidence in the current Greek text we have. And we've even looked at the history of the English translation. Today we come to this session and we're going to look at the process of translating scripture. Most people have no idea what goes into the making of a Bible translation. Translation is a very long and difficult process. It requires extensive knowledge of the original language and of the language of the translation, that is, the language you're translating into. Bible translators spend numerous hours seeking to understand the Greek and the Hebrew languages in their original context. They must then attempt to translate it into English or whatever language they're translating it into in a way that is easily understood by those who read it. Today, we will be looking at this issue of translating the scriptures. We will be looking at the task of translation and the various approaches to translation, then drawing some conclusions about translation itself. Our next session after this one will deal with how to choose a translation, but I think it's very important that you understand this process. So first of all, let's look at the task of translation. Translation involves interpretation to some degree. It is virtually impossible to translate one language exactly word for word into another language. There's just so many differences in languages. There are often words that are difficult to translate exactly. And sometimes you may have to translate two or three words to translate. All languages use metaphors and figures of speech which may not translate well into another language. Some expressions have historical significance that is not understood by the people of another language or ethnic group. Therefore, all translation requires some degree of interpretation. There's a two-step process that typically translators go through. The translator must first uh, interpret the meaning of the text in its original language and its original context, taking into consideration not just the words themselves, but the literary genre, the culture of the author, the life situation of the author and of the historical setting, and assumptions that the author may actually bring to the text. All these things have to be brought into consideration in understanding the original meaning of the text. Then, and only then, is the translator in a position to determine how this meaning can best be conveyed into the receptor language. Here's some examples about translating words. Just think about this. Words in any language have a range of meaning. Here's a couple of examples in English. If I say the word trunk, you don't know what I'm referring to unless I use it in a sentence. Is it the trunk of a tree, the trunk of an elephant, the trunk of a car, or a large box you store things in? It's just a word until you use it in a sentence so that usage determines its meaning. Here's another word, the word key. It could mean a tool to unlock something. It could mean the solution to a puzzle. It could mean the answer sheet for an exam. It could mean the button on a keyboard. It could mean a musical tone or the main point of a message. Just one word, key, one three-letter word can have all these different meanings depending on how it's used in a sentence. Well, Greek and Hebrew are really no different. Words have different meanings depending on how they are used in the context, and therefore they are translated a little bit differently depending on the usage. Here's some examples from the Greek. The Greek word logos, you may have heard this word before. It means word. But here's how it's translated variously in the New American Standard Bible, which is probably one of the closest to a word-for-word translation that's available today. And here's the different ways this word is translated in the NSB. In Matthew 5.32, Except for the reason of unchastity. The word reason there is the word logos. In Matthew 5.37, But let your statement be Yes. There again, that's the statement is the word logos? So when I read these verses, the word I emphasize is the word logos. Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, therefore it's translated word. Matthew 18, 23. A king who wished to settle accounts. Matthew 21, 24. I will ask you one thing. Matthew 28, 15. This story was widely spread. Mark one forty-five spread the news around. Mark 8.32, he was stating the matter plainly. In Luke 4.32, I will ask you one question. The word logos is translated all those different ways in different passages. And this is normal. This is not unusual. This is the issue of language. Here's another word in the Greek language. It's the word poieo, which is a verb, and it means to make. So it's used to, if you say make fruit, that means bear fruit. Make adultery means commit adultery. Make righteousness means practice righteousness. Make alms means to give to the needy. Make lawlessness means be a lawbreaker. Make one hour means work one hour. Make a feast means give a feast. Make the Passover means keep the Passover. Make power means to show strength. Make redemption simply means to redeem. Make mercy means show mercy and make the vengeance means give justice. So you see, the word make is used with all these different words, but has a different meaning. What does it mean by those statements? That's true in all the words of the Hebrew and Greek, and so we have to understand them in their context and in their usage. Some words don't have quite as a wide a range of meaning, but still there is a range of meaning in most words. Then we get to the issue of idioms, translating idioms. An idiom can be a phrase or an expression that is typically presents a figurative or non-literal meaning attached to the phrase. But some phrases become figurative idioms while retaining some bit of a literal meaning of the phrase. It's a way of expressing an idea that is peculiar to a culture or a language. Here are some examples in English. Up in the air. What do we mean by that? We mean it's undecided. Cold feet means someone got afraid. Bite the bullet means you just got to kind of grit your teeth. Kick the bucket means to die. These are examples of maybe idioms or phrases that we use that have a different meaning. In Matthew 5, 2, the Greek idiom has two parts to the phrase, open the mouth and teach, but it had one meaning. It meant he taught them. And so, should we translate the words literally or the meaning of the idiom? Example, in the King James Version, Matthew 5.22 is translated, Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying. The ESV translates, And he opened his mouth and taught them saying. The NIV translates, And he began to teach them saying. You see, He opened his mouth. In other words, we wouldn't use that phrase. If someone stood up to teach in a classroom, we wouldn't say, He opened his mouth and began to teach. We would just say, He began to teach. That's the meaning of the phrase. And so how do you translate that? Do you translate it word for word? Or do you try to translate the meaning? These are the issues that translators face. Here's another idiom. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 6, 16 states, There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. The phrase or the idea, six, even seven, is a Hebrew idiom for emphasis. If you say, there are three, yes, even four ways that I love you, what you're saying is, these are four ways I really, really love you. And so the phrase could be translated something like, there are seven things that God really, really hates. But there's no translation that really uses that. But the normal English does not convey the emphasis of this statement adequately. So, how do we translate it? Most translations simply translate it. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. But again, the emphasis is lost in the translation. These are just some of the issues that translators face in trying to bring us a good English translation that we can understand. So, there are two basic approaches to translation. One is called formal equivalence, and one is called functional equivalence, and I will explain those to you in just a minute. But if you tried to translate the Bible exactly, literally, word for word, you couldn't understand it. For here, instance, here's an example: John 3:16. If you just took word for word and translated it that way, this is how John 3:16 would read: "Thus far loved the God the world, so as the Son." the one and only He gave them all, the believing in Him, not perish, but have life eternal. Now, because we know John three sixteen, many of us kind of know what that means, but if that's the first time you ever read that, that would be totally off the wall. You wouldn't understand what it means. Here's another verse, Luke 6, 1. If you translate it exactly as word for word as possible, this is how it would read. It came about, and on Sabbath, to go through Him, through grain fields, and plucked the disciples of him, and ate the heads, rubbing their hands." Now, what does that mean? It sounds like they went through and plucked the disciples and ate their heads. <laughs> now, that's ridiculous, but that's the word order. You see, different languages have different word orders, and you have to change the word orders and the meaning of the word sometimes in order to understand the translation. This is just an example of what translators have to go through. So here are the two approaches, the formal and the functional equivalence. Formal equivalence is often referred to as word-for-word translating. Now, I just gave you an example of how word-for-word translating is not com- uh, complete because there are no exactly literal word-for-word translations available in English or you couldn't read them. But what this method does, it seeks to retain the form of the Hebrew and Greek while producing basic, understandable English. This approach attempts to give an exact rendering of the original words and grammar. A better rendering might be form for form. It seeks to translate words the same whenever possible. So there's some consistency in the translating of words. This often produces an English reading that is not natural and sometimes confusing. Sometimes the word-for-word translations or those that are f- more formal equivalents are referred to as wooden. In other words, they don't read like smooth, normal English. The other approach is the functional equivalence, and this is referred to as thought-for-thought thought or meaning-for-meaning. Meaning. It seeks to reproduce the meaning of the original text in good idiomatic or natural English. So we're not looking so much as translating words equally we're looking at a phrase and what is the meaning of this phrase or this sentence and translating in a way that it's understandable in English. Sometimes this is referred to as dynamic equivalence because it seeks to produce the same dynamic impact upon the modern readers as the original had on its original audience. It seeks to produce easier to understand renderings of the original language. It seeks to clarify idioms and cultural customs within the text. Since words have different meanings in different contexts, this approach seeks to translate the correct meaning intended by the original text. And so the the most simplest way to put this is word for word and meaning for meaning, but that doesn't really explain the two different approaches. Then there are some translations that use kind of a what's called a mediating translation. They use a little bit of the formal equivalence and a little bit of the functional equivalence to try to come to the best English translation that we can have. Here's some examples of some of these different translations. The formal equivalence translations would be the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the Revised Standard Version, and some people would say the English Standard Version, but we'll give a little better explanation of that in a moment. Functional equivalents would include the Message, which actually is not a translation, the Message is more of a paraphrase, the New Living Translation, the Good News Translation, or the Contemporary English Version. Mediating translations that kind of go a little bit in between would be the New American Bible, the New International Version. Although some people would call this a uh, a functional equivalent, it's really more of a, a little bit more of a mediating version. The Jerusalem Bible, the New English Bible, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which I think now is just simply referred to as the Christian Standard Bible. These are more mediating translations that use some of both approaches to the translation and so it's good to know these things when you're choosing a translation and again we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Another issue I want to bring up in the translating that has received a lot of attention and it's so misunderstood that it's getting a bad rap in a lot of translations and this is called the gender inclusive issue. It is incorrectly referred to as gender neutral here's the issue. The original languages often used the word man or men to refer to all people, all humans. It's like saying mankind. We do it today sometimes. We speak of men and we're not referring to all males, we're referring to all people. Uh, sometimes the original authors use the word brothers to refer to both men and women in the body of Christ. The gender inclusive language seeks to take those instances and translate them with words such as all people, all, are all, our brothers and sisters, which is the original meaning of the language of the text. Now, this is not gender neutral, and it never uses the inclusive or, we might say, a neutral rendering when male or masculine is intended by the text. And that's one of the things that many of the critics have said is that it's neutral. Well, It's not really neutral. If male or masculine is intended, that is the way it's translated. God is never used in the gender-neutral sense. And that's another misinformation that some people bring out. They say that he is made gender-neutral, and that's not true. He's always referred to in the masculine, which is the intent of the original language. He's referred to him, or he, or father. The uh, gender-inclusive language does not change those references to God. Almost all modern translations use this gender-inclusive approach to some extent, even including the New King James Version, although it's not used very often in that version. Some translations have taken this a step further and changed the pronouns from he to they when the gender-inclusive is intended. Now, this is the basic issue. It's not that big a deal, although it is blown up into a big deal. And here's the controversy. There was a big controversy about this a few years ago, and we still hear some of it today. The International Bible Society, now known as Biblica, began to promote their new translation, the NIVI, and the last I standing for inclusive, in 1999 as a more gender-inclusive translation than the NIV. Controversy arose because of a misunderstanding of their meaning of the gender-inclusive terminology. Because of the controversy, IBS, International Bible Society, went away from the NIVI version and then published the TNIV, which means today's new international version, in 2005, which used more gender-inclusive language than the NIV, which was translated, the last translation was in 1984. The gender-inclusive translations were wrongly labeled as gender-neutral. Conservative Christians who did not take time to understand the issue began to criticize the approach. Many conservative Christians jumped on the bandwagon to oppose the so-called gender-neutral translation. Though one may disagree with the approach, it has been totally misrepresented. So let's look at th- this approach to the gender-inclusive issue. It's very interesting if you examine the Bible carefully that Paul used gender-inclusive language when quoting the Old Testament. And here's some examples. In Isaiah 52, 7, it reads, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announce peace, and bring good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, Your God reigns. In Romans 10:15 and this is clearly seen in the Greek language. The verse reads, "How will they preach unless they are sent?" Just as it is written, "How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things." Notice the change from him, masculine in the Old Testament to those, which is a more neutral translation. Paul changed it in his quote In Psalm 36.1, we read, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Masculine. Romans 3.18 reads, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not masculine, not his. Their eyes. Paul changed it from masculine to a more gender inclusive. Another example is found in Psalm 32 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Romans 4 7 reads, How blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Again, Paul changed the masculine he to a more gender inclusive those. And so this is not really that big of an issue. We find it in the Bible where the masculine was changed to a more gender-inclusive because that was the intent of the text. This is what the gender-inclusive issue is all about. When we look at some of our translations, the New Living Translation and the Message, which is a paraphrase and not a translation, are the most gender-inclusive versions available today, but there has been no opposition and no controversy about them. The difference is they used gender-inclusive language throughout, but they did not publicize it. In fact, some people who opposed the TNIV over the gender issue promoted the message, which is a paraphrase, and even more gender-inclusive than the TNIV. Basically, they did not understand the issue. All modern translations use gender-inclusive language to some degree. Some just use it to a greater extent than others. The publishers of the ESV, so basically there are no gender-neutral translations and there are no current translations that refer to God in a gender-neutral way. The gender-inclusive issue does not change the meaning of the original text and quite often actually translate the intent of the text better. I mentioned the ESV and I want to talk about this because we see the popularity of the ESV Uh, came to rise, but it really built off of the controversy over the NIV and the TNIV. And the reason I mention this is because I watched this happen. I lived in Colorado Springs at the time the TNIV came out and at the time that the ESV began to gain popularity. My wife actually worked as an administrative assistant at International Bible Society I knew several of the people who worked at International Bible Society and we talked to them about this TNIV and the translation and tried to understand this issue and, and we just begin to watch this thing develop and unfold. So as the controversy began to roar about the TNIV, the ESV began to promote their version. It was originally published in 2001, but it didn't receive wide acceptance until the NIV controversy. The ESV uses gender-inclusive language as described in the introduction to their translation, but they did not publicize it. The ESV uses the words man and men 671 fewer times than its predecessor the RSV and in each situation uses gender-inclusive language. The popularity of the ESV began to rise around 2006 because of the NIV controversy and now it's become one of the more popular English translations. It claims to be a word for word translation but it is actually more of a mediating translation. I have found in some places that it reads almost exactly like the NIV. Now it's a good translation but it's not necessarily a better than some of the other good ones. And this is just something to bring to attention because I see the ESV now has become such a popular English translation, but it rose to popularity on the controversy around another translation which they used a very similar process in translating. We'll talk more about the translations and how to choose a translation in our next episode. So in conclusion, Translation is a difficult and arduous process. It requires great diligence in understanding the original languages in their original context. Translating the original text into English that we can understand is an art and it takes great thought and skill. There are many good translations available to us today and choosing one can sometimes be confusing you can ask the following question when seeking to choose a good translation. Does the translation accurately translate the original meaning of the Greek and the Hebrew text into the English language in such a way that it clearly communicates to the target audience the message God intended to communicate to the original audience? In other words, is the English that we read correctly communicating what God communicated to the original audience. And that is the challenge of translation. I hope this has been helpful. I hope you've gained some understanding about the process of translation. And I hope that in our next episode, we can help you weed through this a little bit and maybe choose a good translation or translations for your own reading and study. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Bible. And thank you that we can have a copy of the Bible translated into our language, a language we can read and that we can understand it, we can hear your message, we can hear your word, and we can apply it to our lives so that we can become more like you. Thank you for that. And may we use the translations that are available to us today in such a way to communicate your truth clearly and plainly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.